Ever wish there was a fast way to get up to speed on a complicated topic? Well, you're in luck. This series might just be for you. As providers, it's hard to stay on top of all the specialties in a multi-specialty world. So join us for the month of October and get back in the loop about everything that's happening in cochlear implants, from the fundamentals to what's changing with candidacy, patient characteristics, and the latest in tech. And you're going to hear it from the best of the best. Hit the subscribe button and be the first to know when an episode drops for this Medod Pro Doc Talk special series podcast on cochlear implants, sponsored by Envoy Medical. Hey, and welcome to this episode on cochlear implants. Camille and I are back I'm co-hosting. Camille, good to see you again, or I guess hear you at least. Hi, how are you? <laughs> I am good. We're really good today. Today we have a guest, Dr. Matthew Bush. Thanks so much. I'm uh, really thankful for the opportunity to chat with you and um, talk about a, a topic that's uh, near and dear to my heart. So um, I'm a neurotologist and otologist at the University of Kentucky. I was born and have lived most of my life in the Appalachian Midwest region of the country here, and I've done all of my training. During my training along the way in otolaryngology and in neurotology uh, fellowship, you know, just came across so many patients that were dealing with access challenges, especially for rural populations. And, you know, sort of know this from an, uh, from being an Appalachian at birth, um, you know, from birth, I can really get a sense of the challenges for many communities to gain access, as well as just to have trust with the healthcare communities um, to receive specialty care. And it was during residency that, you know, I saw just stark differences between families that would come from more urban regions and the access and um, the timing that they would bring their children in for care versus those that came from you know, very uh, low resource communities within some rural populations within Appalachia. And so as I, you know, began to pursue a career in the field clinically, as well as develop an academic research program, I realized that those two don't really need to be separate. Those two really can reside together and inform one another that my research and is, as a health disparity, health equity researcher um, can inform uh, clinical practice and clinical practice uh, doing doing the same in the opposite direction. That that's so interesting, Matt, and I I appreciate your work. Um, I think that's something that I just always had this enormous amount of respect for you because you're trying to approach a problem that I think a lot of people are scared to approach. And um, how? What was the one thing, do you think there's a key thing that stood out in your mind? I know you said you saw these stark differences, but was there a key thing that stood out that you said, I have to try to do something different? Yeah, you know, I, I think I can I can really take myself back into kind of my like my third year of residency. And I'm here, you know, in Lexington, Kentucky, which is a, a beautiful town that's set amongst horse farms and you know, bourbon distilleries nearby. And it's 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 a very comfortable place to live. But you know, seeing children that may come two hours away from deep within the heart of Appalachia, seeing a four-year-old child show up on our doorstep 
that um, doesn't have a means for communication that fell through the cracks that was told by perhaps a, a pediatrician that they that this child's autistic um, and have never really had an a, a appropriate diagnostic um, evaluation with a ABR never had speech language mm -hmm. pathology evaluation like you know when you see that kind of patient come through your doors, it affects you as a human being. It affects you right. as a clinician. And then it also the scientific side of our brain begins to kind of like, you know, light bulbs and fireworks go off of like, why does this happen? How could right. this kind of delay occur in, you know, in the United States? I mean, isn't right. healthcare available for all? It may be available for all, but it's not accessible. Uh, it may not be a reality in some places that really would, could be considered as a healthcare desert. Yeah, that's a key statement. I think it's available, but not accessible. Um, you know, I think that's that's absolutely true. I grew up in the sand hills of Nebraska, and I think all the time, you know, we drive hours if I had a hearing impairment or needed specialty care in, in any field, really, we would have had to drive hours to receive that care. And, and sometimes the resources aren't there to get you from one point to, to the next point. And so the medical field, how, how do you try to focus down your attention on something? Because, you know, like you said, it's a human problem. We want to help people. We don't want to leave somebody out. We're, we're kind of inbred to want to help and, and care for. How, how do you focus that down to what you're doing? It's, that's, that is the million dollar question. And I'll tell you, to look at, at problems such as health disparity or access to care, which is just this giant wall of a problem. And it's terrifying to think like, I, I have no idea where to start and where to begin. Yeah. And I'll tell you, I came out of my fellowship in 2011, but as I was finishing my fellowship, I was kind of writing my first grant or a version of a grant to address some disparities. And I'll just never forget my mentor saying to me, who had mentored me through other grant applications and other papers and, you know, really mm -hmm. just had excellent experience in that mentorship relationship. But he told me, he said, you wrote this grant different and you wrote it with passion and this could be a career for you. And honestly, like as a trainee and as a mentee, that meant a lot to say like, okay, you wrote with, you know, passion, you, 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 there was some clarity that's here. Maybe the science needs to go somewhere else and maybe the, you know, you start somewhere else, but you know, it's good to do this. So to getting a little bit of that, that affirmation, like, yes, we can, and we should be a part of, describing, defining the problem, and then designing and developing some uh, interventions or programs to fix it. So that was certainly a, a big step as I'm, you know, finishing in 2011 and I'm looking around like, okay, I'm kind of an oddball. I mean, I'm kind of a nonconformist and what surgeon does, you know, public health and health equity research. And, and it was nobody at the time. So I really felt like an outsider, but I found community and found connection in some of my colleagues in public health here at the University of Kentucky, as well as, you know, learning from people like Carl White, you know, sort of our, right. our father of the Eddy system and, and, and people like Carl and, and, and other mentors that I was able to come across were able to sort of like bring me into the right frame of mind. Like you don't have to understand and explain everything all at once. 
but start mm-hmm. with what you feel like is the most pressing issue. For me, I felt like it was the pediatric issue for the right. aforementioned reason and describe it first. Just, mm-hmm. just be careful and take your time. The surgeon in me said, okay, I can fix this problem. I can heal with steel. I can get, I can cut into this problem and I can, you know, get this fixed uh, in a short period. But that was obviously, you know, a, a misinformed notion. It really, I needed that scientific advice to say, hey, take some time. Let's understand, describe it. And let's look at some mechanisms that have are, are the barriers, the facilitators that, that are either propagating or will, uh, you know, alleviate this problem. And then we could work towards with communities and with the patients that are involved in this type of a situation, work together to try to develop something that is doesn't have to be rocket science, but is innovative and impactful to be able to move the needle in the right direction. So that was kind of the career progression for me to say, okay, I, I can do this and, and moving not only from I can do this, but like I must do this. Like I feel mm-hmm. compelled to really um, commit my career and my time to trying to address healthcare access. We've been talking to people about candidacy for CI. One of the things that we're hearing even from audiology providers is that we don't really know the path for, is this person a candidate, let alone like when they get into the, the rehabilitative side of it that has a whole nother challenge, you know, hey, this patient made it there, they've got through the right diagnostics, uh-huh. they're, you know, it's determined that they're, that we should move forward, but then you still have this extra burden of like, how are we going to manage a CI with payment insurance? Does this person have, have the right hospital facilities around or the clinics to follow up? And that path, that path doesn't stop. So they're identified, right. you know, they get to Dr. Bush, he does an implant, they get connected at his facility. And that's just step one, you know, like Mm -hmm. you just identified, there are so many steps after that, that have to fall in place for a patient to be able to utilize that technology to its fullest. Yeah. Yeah. What we do is really not transactional in nature. I mean, we really are becoming, I mean, we really push to be humanists in the field of hearing healthcare because we're dealing with chronic problems that are not really life ending, such as cancer or, right. you, know, you know, very, um, you know, severe heart disease, but we do know it's debilitating in, in these very subtle ways, yet very profound ways in the long term. And to be committed to like the long term game with these people is really the challenge. But we know that hearing loss affects those other things like you're at higher risk for falling you're at higher risk for developing dementia you're at higher risk for um other serious medical conditions because of hearing loss so while like you said from um a very uh surface or superficial standpoint it's hearing loss is is that really necessary to intervene today well, mm-hmm. yeah, it is. Um, even though it isn't cancer, even though it isn't heart disease, it does worm its way into other impacting other uh, body function. Yeah, I, I think that highlights the importance of the message of, you know, the the great importance of hearing across the lifespan for health and wellness and communication. 
and that message going out into broad, um, in, a, in a more broader context to primary care, being a part of, you know, primary care education, being mm -hmm. a part of major social media networks and information that goes into the public as well. You know, where, where do people start to learn about the importance of hearing? Is that back in elementary school, you know, when they're learning the different parts of the body? I mean, are there things yeah. that in our society that we're, you know, addressing the importance of hearing? And, and like I said, I mean, this is, this is part of the underlying, yeah. um, you know, challenge in the, in the lifelong work that's, you know, needs to, really the generational work that needs to be done. So Matt, you talked a little bit ago about developing mechanisms. Can you talk about what that means? What, what, what are your thoughts? So, you know, it's you, when you start to describe a problem, often through maybe retrospective data, for example, as we think about, you know, just research methods, we take a, you know, a, a group of patients that we may have implanted. And for me, you know, one of our, one of our early studies, we began to look at children that were congenitally deaf and received cochlear implants and just compared the timing of the major events that occurred for those children. You know, when were they diagnosed? When did they receive hearing aids? When were they implanted? And, you know, when you start with that, that type of a descriptive work, we did, you know, we found indeed that essentially it takes rural children two times longer to receive a hearing aid on average and two times longer to receive a cochlear implant on average than those from a from an urban area. And actually, when you look at the mean age for those those children, I mean, we're talking about 4.7 years of age. I mean, there's this four and a half, five-year-old that I, I saw as a third-year resident that now when I do that descriptive work in the research lab, mm -hmm. I see like, wow, this is really validating. Like we weren't crazy. That wasn't just a one-time occurrence that there is a problem here. But, you know, you've, if you've seen one patient, you've seen one patient, you know, and it's not enough to just generalize. Yeah. We have to say, okay, where were the breakdowns? So the mechanisms are based on, okay, what are the factors with the individual? What are the factors with the system? What's the, um, you know, the factors related to the healthcare resources? Is there an audiologist within, you know, a, a 90 mile radius mm -hmm. of that uh, patient's home? And so, after we began to just define, okay, here's some numbers of the differences or the no-show rates or things like this. And you say, there's okay, there's a problem with this population that's vulnerable, more at risk for no-show. Let's begin to use some methods. And what I found is that, you know, we can't rely on quantitative data alone. Quantitative data is king within our traditional mm -hmm. audiologic and medical fields, Right. But we really, we, we value this as clinicians. We, we live on quant qualitative data as the patients tell us what the problem is, but right. we rarely integrate that into our research work. And that's where we've really been able to under, uncover some mechanisms and some things about, okay, these are leading to not only just one individual family not following up or one, you know, um, 75 year old patient not receiving a hearing aid or a cochlear implant, but whole communities or whole counties or whole sections of the, uh, of the state, for example, um, yeah. that are not pursuing any care. So that's, that's how we take, you know, one problem and then they begin to unpack it and don't tackle everything, but just, 
take the next step that's needed to understand the problem. So how do you think uh, one of the other podcasts, we talked briefly about uh, telehealth. And how do you think telehealth will impact positively or maybe even negatively from your perspective? I'm not sure. Um, access. Yeah, I'll tell you, I have this love-hate relationship with telehealth. I'm sure we all do that have actually provided me care over, over yeah. uh, the, uh, the internet. But um, when I first was um, writing that, that, that um, you know, very uh, um, poorly written grant, my first approach into this healthcare field, I thought like, okay, I'm going to write this telehealth. This is the way to fix this. I'm going to do tele-ABR, tele-whatever, mm-hmm. and we're going to be able to find these people and help these people, help the, identify these children with hearing loss. And I realized like, you know, you can have all the resources, the most perfectly outfitted, um, you know, telehealth center within your academic campus. But the real problem is what's on the other end. Is there, first of all, any high-speed internet? And what's on the other end? Where are these people? Where is the equipment? And who pays for that? And so one of the fears and the challenges that I face is that I'm so worried about patients feeling like they continue to be disconnected. Right. from community and we and and they still are isolated within the community they're in that one particular place with one particular provider when we know that there's much um, broader and richer resources within a community that perhaps may be more culturally appropriate to in, to open the door for access mm-hmm. in in healthcare access and healthcare utilization is not a you know, an either or, you know, you either choose telehealth or something else. It, it's really an often an all the above and a blending together of different technologies and interventions. Um, but I do think that we really have to um, consider what is what is the community willing and able to do? There's been a lot of research that's been done in rural communities and there's other, you know, urban communities that are marginalized where racism has impacted their access, where they feel like telehealth is not the same quality, they're treated differently, and they don't their, their lack of trust in healthcare is eroded even more sometimes with telehealth. So please don't get me wrong. I mean, I provide care right. with telehealth and I think it's necessary, but I just think it's it is not the one in, one single yeah. solution to open the door. Yeah, I I appreciate both perspectives of that because I think you're right from a very, like I said, superficial level, uh, you you want to believe that that can fix it all. It's kind of the um, solution to everything, right? Yeah. Well, mm-hmm. I think COVID kind of showed us too, it brought so many more people participating in healthcare that way. There's so many different determinants that make it difficult. Well, you know, Matt, you know, we talked about pediatrics and they just don't have the attention span to sit and well they they can look at a screen and be on TikTok for hours but you know if we we want to accomplish something like mapping or programming or yeah. some type of therapy that's a little bit different yeah. on a on a screen like this that's Matt, a very different story I, Dr. Bush sorry I keep calling you <laughs> we're Matt, friends just be, because we yeah we've known each other for years if you call so. me Matthew Lee I know I'm in big trouble so that's okay <laughs> I have just thoroughly enjoyed this conversation and um, thank you for taking the time. Yeah. And I think that the, you know, Matt, you had sent me a couple different articles on um, one, which I think 
even though it's a, a little over five years old, I think it was, it's a great foundation article for people that, you know, the factors involved in access and utilization of adult hearing health care, kind of that systematic review. You know, and um, unfortunately, Susan, five years isn't very long for that isn't. kind of. I know, which I, is so Well, horrible. when you add the conversion of COVID, then it was like just yesterday. It was exactly. yes. yesterday, but it's a great place to start if you're, you're starting to dig in and trying to understand it. And I think um, the more recent one that you had just sent was defining the disparities of um, CI through the social determinants of health that I think was published. Was it published in seminars and hearing? Yep. Seminars yeah. and hearing in 2021. Another great article for people that are looking for a little bit more um, in-depth, you know, discussion around um, this topic. So I appreciated both of those too. And I wanted to mention them in case anybody listening wants to do a little bit more digging so yeah thanks for for you know giving us uh, a little bit of uh free advertising on those those papers honestly those are those are papers written you know margaret barnett was the first author of the systematic review and she was a visiting uh, extern you know in her fourth year of of aud training and that just shows the value of collaborative uh, approach to health disparity it's not about audiologists fixing it or public health epidemiologists fixing it i mean it really takes a team approach and um, Marissa Shu is the co-author of the more recent Social Determinants of Health Review, and uh, Marissa is an MPH uh, who works with me. And so, you know, we really value um, taking the time to ask the right questions, really involve the community and try to understand all the different factors that will influence disparities. And, you know, we don't want to approach uh, access and utilization inequity and disparities with just a a cookie cutter mold of like, here, take your telehealth widget, you know, and take this home and sure. this will fix your problems. But by involving communities, we can realize that, hey, we can bring advocates of the community to bear and bring their voice forward and help them, you know, communicate how might we fix this problem together? How can we make hearing loss an important agenda within mm -hmm. primary care visits within the pediatric community that really will value uh, eddy information and eddy follow-up. Sure. And so, you know, I, as I was told by my mentor, I mean, I clearly have got, I've got a lot more work to do than I have accomplished and uh, I'm, I'm really enjoying doing it and I'm going to, you know, keep my nose to the grindstone. So it's a, it's been a privilege to be involved in this field. Well, we really appreciate having you here today and um, thanks for your time. And uh, we look forward to adding this episode um, in a, you know, it'll go live here in a couple of weeks. So people, when they start listening, I think it will really fall into that category of, as we're thinking about candidacy and how to get patients to the right place and through the right, you know, treatment and then beyond as you two, um, you know, so elegantly stated, this is a great topic and something that I think everybody really needs to be thinking about. So thanks so much. Thank you. Take care, privilege. Thank you for listening to this special series of Doc Talk by Medod Pro, sponsored by Envoy Medical.